folks, our system is broken. Nope. Let me rephrase that. To be broken implies that at one point, it was whole. And I am not convinced it was ever in such a state. Our legal system is fucked. And yes, I am using that as a scientific term. Welcome to It's All Relative, the show that completely removes the function in dysfunctional family. My name is Kaylee, and I am the host of this shit show. If you can't tell, my voice is still out. I don't think it's ever going to come back. If you are just starting this podcast and you get lost and or offended, that's on you. This is a podcast about crime, and this is episode 5 in a series. I just can't at this point. Some days I feel I should just throw my hands in the air and give up. I've done fairly well so far in telling the Routier story in a manner which you can all understand. That's not a dig, people. This thing is really complicated, and I have felt lost in a labyrinth with a minotaur ready to gore my midriff. Before I forget, I want to thank all those at Kitchen Table Research Podcast and the Beach 34 Podcast. They have helped me immensely, and please go check those podcasts out. It is well worth your time. Cole Porter and Sutton Foster will get you all ready to listen to more on the Routier case, and I will see you on the other side. Honestly, today, I may be the Minotaur, because the expert I'm going to talk about makes me very, very, very angry. But first, I need to mention Darlie's bruises, because we haven't talked about them yet. Darlie was in the police station the day she got out of the hospital, June 8, 1996. She and Darren gave written statements of the night of the crime. Two days later, she appeared with the inside of her arms almost black with bruising. The prosecution believed she had done it to herself, particularly in light of the pathology of the standard bruise. They appear from 24 to 48 hours after occurring. In other words, if the bruises had occurred in the morning of the 6th, when the murders took place, the bruises would have appeared by the time she left the hospital and gave her statement to the police. The prosecution asserted that Darley realized the police were suspicious of her and bruised herself up so she would have more wounds to show that she had been attacked. Three doctors testified that bruises that looked like Darley's were most likely from blunt force trauma. They testified that bruising like Darley's tended to appear in one to two days after inducement and that had they seen the bruises, they would have sent her for an x-ray to check for broken bones. Testifying for the defense, Dr. DeMaio said, quote, Question. Are those injuries consistent and compatible, those shown in the photographs of June the 10th, 1996? Are those consistent and compatible, the bruises evidenced in those photographs, with having been received by Darley Routier during the early morning hours of June 6, 1996, some four days or so earlier? Answer. Yes, sir. The coloration is appropriate and it is consistent with it. 
Okay, Dr. DeMaio, are those injuries consistent or inconsistent with having been self-inflicted, the bruising? Answer, that is, I would say, it's inconsistent. I mean, how do you get blunt force injuries here? I mean, it's easy to get blunt force injuries here if you want. You know, I can bang my arm against the edge here. But to here? And also, again, it's very widespread. I mean, this is a lot of force. You. Everybody has bumped into something and you get a bruise. But look at this. It's just really severe hemorrhage up and down the arm. This is tremendous force. End quote. And what he's talking about here and here is saying it's really easy to get a bruise on the outside of your arm or the lateral side of your arm, but it's very difficult to get one on the inside or medial side, especially to the extent that she had. Even her attending physician in the ER, Dr. Santos, continually uses phrases like usually and most likely because he knows that not all bruises act the same. Personally, I was on the fence about these, but curious. Because even with my forensic background, I was having a hard time coming up with something that would cause bruises that look like that on her underarms. Because think about it, people don't hold their arms up when they're being attacked so the attacker can hit your armpits. Maybe your forearms? The outside of your forearms, but not the armpits. Then I had surgery, yet again. Each time this happens to me, it's a different experience. This time, I gained a bruising on my wrists from the IVs in my hands. These bruises were very like the bruising on Darley's wrists. Hers just extended much further along the underside of her arms. Also, my bruises appeared on day three of my hospital stay. Not day one or two. Day three. So, I started wondering what other types of hospital things can give you bruises like those, and as a result, I'm actually leaning towards the surgery, or even just the bleeding from her neck wound, in conjunction to the IVs, being the culprit. If you look up images of arm bruises from angioplasty, you'll see what I mean. At the time, angioplasty was in a precarious place as doctors debated its validity. It didn't really catch on until around the turn of the millennia. So the accompanying bruising would not have been the kind most doctors and nurses recognized. No, Darley didn't have angioplasty, but the area of her wound is in the same place the scope goes through in an angioplasty. And it is the damage to this internal area that causes the bruising. The prosecution in the Darley Routier trial paid a blood pattern expert from Oklahoma to look at the crime scene and the evidence. His name is Tom Bevel. Bevel was paid $125 per hour with the daily maximum set at $1,500. I can only assume that amount is plus expenses, but the full extent of his billing scheme was not explored at trial. I would also like to remind everyone that this is 1996 money. Just FYI, I do not want to imply that an expert in any given field should not charge quote-unquote too much money for their expertise. If your time is worth $125 an hour, about $250 an hour today, charge it. Do not sell yourself short. I do, however, question where the state got the money to pay for this. If there was no one closer to Rowlett, who could have acted as a blood pattern expert, and if Darley Routier had been an Hispanic house cleaner or black tradesperson, would the state have bothered to hire an expert at all? Nonetheless, Mr. Bevel flew out to Rowlette on more than one occasion to look at evidence and conduct demonstrations. Both prosecution and defense lawyers flew to Oklahoma to see the evidence Bevel was evaluating in person. 
So there's a lot of time and money that went into his being on this case. When Bevel takes the stand, the prosecutor, Greg Davis, takes Bevel through his credentials and starts having Bevel outline the basics of blood pattern analysis. Quote, question, when you go out to a crime scene and you look at bloodstain patterns, what kind of information can you obtain from looking at them? Answer, we are trying to identify the occurrences that took place in order to produce the bloodstains as they are found. In essence, it's a form of crime scene reconstruction, but it's a narrow form because we're dealing specifically with bloodstain patterns. Bloodstains are uniform in character, and of course, if they were not, we couldn't use it as a scientifically valid discipline. What I am saying here is that if I have the same volume of blood on the same surface, and I have the same occurrence impact it, the same type of bloodstain pattern should result each and every time that I do it, providing that everything is equal. The same amount of blood, same surface, same impact. End quote. What Bevel says is genius. Bloodstains are uniform in character, and of course, if they were not, we couldn't use it as a scientifically valid discipline. This is the basis of science, any science. In order for the results to be accepted as fact, they have to be repeatable. He says, the same type of bloodstain pattern should result each and every time that I do that, providing that everything is equal. The same amount of blood, same surface, same impact. However, his testimony after these words show what kind of a scientist he really is. In the words of Callie Duquesne, your thorough and my thorough are not the same thing. What Bevel is actually using this definition for is to suggest to the jury that he is trustworthy. In other words, bloodstains are uniform because I say they are, and would I be testifying here today if I didn't know what I was talking about? Shortly after Bevel utters these words, the defense calls a hearing and tries to impeach or at least limit Bevel's testimony. For those in the know, the defense cites Daubert and Texas Rules 702, 703, and 705. Importantly, this is all done outside the range of the jury's ears. They clear them out of the courtroom. Because the problem with Bevel saying what he did was that he played to the jury's innate system of judging competence in other people. You act like you know what you're doing, and people tend to believe you. It's the clipboard effect. But just because you say it's true, doesn't make it so. For a significant determination to be made in science, the determination has to be repeatable. That means that if all the variables are the same, say tacky blood covering 30% of the knife on the blade only, being dropped from the height of 34 inches onto a vinyl floor, and being dropped while walking at a pace of 0.4 miles per hour, letting go of said knife, while arms are swinging towards the posterior of the individual holding that knife, with the knife held by the handle, sharp blade pointed anterior or forward and pointed and down, that the knife has a certain percentage of chance of leaving a given blood pattern on that vinyl floor. For an experiment, you would need to record things like what quantity of blood was on the knife. 50% coverage, 10%, 70%? Was the blood mostly at the tip of the knife? Or was it a fairly even coverage? Was it just on the blade? Was the blood wet? Was it tacky, dry, wet at one end, but dry at the other? What was the measurement from the knife to the floor when you dropped it? Was the knife dropped when you were standing still? Turning? Moving? If moving or turning, at what speed were those things happening? 
In what direction was the knife when it was dropped? How was it dropped straight down with a bit of a spin? Were you barehanded when you dropped the knife? Were you wearing gloves? On what surface was the knife dropped? And this is all assuming that you are using the same knife every time. Once these variables have been determined, you need to record all the ones that are pertinent to that drop the knife for each and every time you drop that knife. Now, I know many of you have steam coming out of your ears because your brain is on overload. Take a breath. I'm almost done. What I'm trying to say is that all the variables have to be the same for a determination to be made. To find out what that determination is, you have to test and record any given variable combination multiple times. Now, I remember the minimum being 36 times, but that may just be my francophone instruction warming its way into my consciousness. Statisticians, please weigh in on the minimum n. But let's say I'm right about 36. Count up all those different variables I gave for dropping that knife. Then you have to count up all the times you drop the knife, changing one variable, and then two variables, and then three. And you get a whole fucking lot of times you are going to be dropping a knife. And recording all of that stuff every time. And then running stat tests to see if there is a blood pattern that will form on the floor given those variables and how likely it is that that pattern will form. After reading the transcript of the hearing, the defense calls. It is painfully obvious that Bevel did not do this. Bevel made a half-hearted attempt to dip a knife in blood and throw it around. He did not log any variables. He did not take notes. He did mention that photographs should be taken, so there was a photographer. But he did not dictate or even suggest to the photographer which shots to take. He did not write a report when he was finished because the prosecution told him it would not be necessary. Neither he nor the prosecution can even remember who it was that actually took the photos that day. So what the fuck did he do it for? What he did get was a video of himself stabbing using the bloody knife, which was flinging blood over his back in a rather dramatic way. It also became clear that Bevel had no problem calling these activities experiments. Zero. Not even an iota of a problem. And he had every intent on calling what he did experiments until he underwent this hearing. After said hearing, he adamantly refused to call them experiments and would only call them demonstrations. As you may have guessed, the defense's objection to Bevel's testimony was overruled. The jury was brought back in and the trial continued. As another aside, this overruling is a common theme in this trial. The judge did appear to have a bias promoting law enforcement and brought the prosecution. It being Texas in the 90s, his bias could have been worse, but still. Oh, and if you think judges are impartial, you're kidding yourself. But back to Bevel. Mr. Bevel testifies that he performs these demonstrations in the hope of having something to illustrate his testimony. I was not convinced. And full disclosure, I read the second part of his testimony first by accident. I read his testimony just as the jury would have heard it, and I still wasn't convinced. It just got worse after I read part one, which included the hearing. Bevel's testimony and those exhibits as pertained to blood pattern evidence, are pointless and extremely prejudicial and should have been excluded. 
So what did he actually testify to? Remember that chef's knife that Darley said she picked up off the floor in the utility room and then lay it down on the counter? Well, there's nothing to indicate that a bloody knife was ever on that utility floor. Bevel testifies that the blood on the floor is all gravitational blood drops, the kind you would find if someone dripping blood had merely stood or been milling about in the room. From what I can see of the photos, he is correct. The only caveat I would add is that several of the drops look like the blood is thinner than the others, as if the blood was mixed with water or saliva or something. The impact on the floor of those drops is bigger and not as round. At least one of the drops looks like it could have directionality, and a couple could actually be smears. But overall, I agree with Bevel, at least from what I can see in the pictures. There's nothing that says knife hit floor here. To be fair, however, from what I see of the counter, I don't see any blood pattern indicators that a bloody knife sat there either. And I'm saying that with the knife actually sitting on the counter in the photos. It really all depends upon the viscosity of the blood. Bevel also testifies to what he identifies as a bloody knife print in the carpet. It states Exhibit 111, the drip. Jesus, this drip is ridiculous. Again, I am seeing Exhibit 111 on darlyfacts.com. The full exhibit is actually three photos. In these photos, there is a stain in the carpet that looks like a blood stain in the shape of the blade of the murder weapon. What I'm looking at on the Darley Facts website is shit, but I have no better option. So the result is that I cannot confirm or refute that the knife in the photos is laying against the stain in the most appropriate way, or if it really matches at all. Now, the way Bevel has laid the knife in these photos leaves a one inch-ish of the stain. Again, there's no measurement reference here extending out into the carpet, not matching up with the knife blade. This bit that sticks out beyond the tip of the blade, Bevel has the nerve to suggest that it is a drip. Yep, as if gravity has somehow shifted 90 degrees. Bevel has determined with his non-experiments that the drip was happening as the knife was going toward the ground, tip first, and the drip met the ground first maintaining contact with the knife and the ground as the knife continued on its way to its position fully on the carpet. I do see what he is suggesting, and no matter how improbable this is, I will give him the possibility. Crazy shit happens all the time. I do, however, believe that a drip staining the carpet so as to create a line that matches up perfectly with the rest of the stain is nigh on impossible. And while I do believe that what we often deem to be impossible does happen, if this is a drip, at least as he describes it, I will eat it, as my mother used to say. I could maybe be swayed to believe that the whole thing is a drip, and the arc similarity to the knife blade is the human brain seeing a connection and pattern where there isn't one. That's that pattern recognition, people. Look it up. BT Dubs, it is established with some pretty comical bumbling on both sides, that the blood in this stain is Darley's. If Darley were to have cut her own throat in the kitchen, last, as the prosecution suggests, her blood shouldn't be on the carpet in the shape of a knife. Bevel also testifies to the vacuum. Pay attention, I got the issue with the blood on the vacuum wrong. The problem presented by the prosecution 
wasn't that there was no blood on the vacuum. It was that there was blood on it, suggesting that it had been grabbed by the handle, bled on, and then been laid down and bled on some more. This, they suggest, is somehow proof that Darley bled on it when she cut her own throat, that she grabbed the handle and bled on it some more when she laid the vacuum down to stage the scene. I think all you can prove is that the vacuum was grabbed and that the blood dripped on it both when it was upright and when it was prone. Darley's testimony of leaning on it for a bit of structure and then pulling it down with her as she collapsed to the floor also fits the blood evidence. Oh, and Bevel did not do any experiments, aka his demonstrations, with the vacuum. The item that Bevel testifies about that probably did the most damage to Darley's defense is the blood drops on her t-shirt. Not the blood pattern on her whole shirt, mind, just selected dots. I have a couple issues with Bevel's examination of the blood on the nightshirt. The first I have already mentioned, that he did not at least try to read the story that the blood on the shirt as a whole was telling. The second is that it seems that he decided that the blood splotches on Darley's nightshirt arrived on her shirt when she was killing the boys. He decided this and then set out to make his theory fit. Because here's the thing, Darley's nightshirt was almost completely covered in blood down the front of the shirt. The few spots that aren't covered in blood, those are those splotches. Not huge splotches. And if the splotches were from her stabbing the boys, there aren't that many. It is in the process of harming the victim that the blood coming from the victim is cast off or splattered. Cast off or splatter should essentially all be from the victim. Of the 21 total locations sampled from the front of Darley's shirt, 13 of which were those selected because Bevel thought these were cast-off drops. But only 4 of those 13 have Damon and Devon's blood present at all. Of these 4, 2 have Damon's mixed with Darley's and 2 have Devon's mixed with Darley's. All the rest of the blood samples were Darley's. Let me repeat, if Darley had attacked the boys, and therefore got their blood on her in the attack, these splotches, the cast-off, on her shirt, should have all been the boy's blood. They should have been mostly, if not all, Damon and Devon's blood. Bevel picked 13 splotches to sample. All of them came back Darley's blood, with nine of them all being Darley's blood. And... There are other things that mimic cast-off or attack-related splatter. Aspirated blood is a big one. And there was buku reasons for Darley to have the boys aspirated blood on her. If she was getting wet towels, bloody splash from that activity would produce the same kind of splotching as well. For the back of Darley's shirt, Bevel recorded this very vivid video of him stabbing with blood flying up over his back to illustrate how these drops could have gotten on the back of the shirt. People, this is the part that it really makes me mad. What splotches on her back? There's nothing there. The back of the nightshirt is much cleaner than the front, and while there is still blood, there was not a wash in it. Twelve spots total were sampled from the shirt back, six of which were thought to be cast-off splotches. 
only one spot. That's Uno, people. Not only has the boy's blood, it is all the boy's, Devon's. One spot. One. And let me be really clear here. This is a spot. I cannot fathom a universe in which this spot is considered cast off. Bevel puts together the video, illustrating vividly how Darley would have gotten these cast-off drops on the back of her shirt. And yes, I did say plural, spots. Bevel puts this all together with the assumption that the other six spots on the back of her shirt belong to the boys. He put together that video and formed his opinion by attempting to recreate the spots six or eight times. Yep, six or eight, he wasn't even sure of how many times. And it definitely wasn't 36, or even in the double digits. But these spots cannot possibly be cast off, because these spots are Darley's blood. All Darley's blood. All the blood that Bevel thought was cast off was Darley's. Remember, cast off comes from the victim. And the one spot, that one spot, which is all blood from one of her boys, is literally that, a spot. This thing is one-sixteenth of an inch. Bevel has the audacity to talk about directionality with this thing. Now, blood can show what direction it was going when it landed, and cast-off certainly will have directionality, especially if gotten on the back of a shirt, worn when stabbing someone lying on the ground. But this thing, the spot, there's no directionality. It's not in any way an oval shape or a line. It could have gotten on the back of her shirt any number of ways, including when it was put in an evidence bag, wet with blood, with other things wet with blood. The man is delusional, unprofessional, and dangerous, and he should have been blackballed. Don't get me wrong here. Done correctly, blood pattern analysis is a science, not hard science, but very little science involving living things is. Tom Bevel is entitled to his opinion, and all my issues with his role in the prosecution would have been addressed if Darley's defense had presented a BPA expert of their own. You know, a rebuttal witness. But that didn't happen. And ultimately, I don't believe it would have made a difference in Darley's conviction. Why? Because there were too many things stacked against her, none of which had anything to do with science or with evidence. But before I go on to those things, I want to close the discussion of the evidence with James Cron's summary of why he felt there had been no intruder. I do not promise that there won't be commentary. Quote, My opinion that an intruder did not commit these offenses was based on the entire scene, not one object or item. It was based upon the point of entry, starting there. There were no signs of entry or exit from somebody coming in at night from the outside. The type of cutting on the screen is inconsistent with the average or known ways to enter cutting screens. This is all common sense. The screen will pull out very easily. The cuts were not by the two latches at the bottom where the cuts normally are when the screen is removed. Okay, so now here I would say, if they're not removing the screen, as he says is normally done, why would the cuts be in the normal spot? But back to Kron. The dust is on the sill. Criminals normally are not concerned with their footprints. Footprints are heel prints or clock prints from their clothing. 
they are not aware that we can make weave and cloth pattern comparisons. So anyway, there wasn't any signs that I could see of the entry or exit. There was no blood and so forth. The trail through the garage going in. I didn't expect to find a lot there on the initial entry of an intruder. Oh, and by the way, I'm not convinced about this screen as an entry or exit either. We discussed that already, but it has been proven several times, even at the trial. They brought in a window. That it is actually pretty easy to go in and out of that window. In fact, the officer at trial who did the demonstration grabbed this sill in the same place where the CSIs found a strange smudge. But Cronigan, when the intruder got in, the fact that a knife was found in a knife block to commit the offenses with is inconsistent with the burglar that just came in and cut the screen. It's equivalent to coming in with one knife, putting it up, and looking for another knife to commit the crimes with, the stabbings with. Well, yes, but that is presuming that the bread knife was the knife used to cut the screen, and I'm still not completely convinced this wasn't contamination. Cron again. There was a lot of jewelry and property laying in plain view and none of that was disturbed or touched. There was none reported missing. Oh, and we haven't talked about the jewelry or property yet, so for now, I will just say that there's no reason to think that this was a burglary, but more from Cron. The wounds on the two boys were approximately the same, that is, deep, penetrating wounds. The wounds to the defendant were different in context, different style of wounding. Okay, well, he's not completely wrong there, but I would also add that attacking an adult could easily be a different type of attack than going after a five- or six-year-old child. Cron goes on, quote, The cuts, they told me, that she was cut on the neck and both sides of her shoulder and arm. To fight an assailant, there should have been some cast-off blood, which from the flailing of the arms and movement, and I didn't find any cast-off blood on the glass tabletop, on walls, arm level, high up. And then Cron also found it weird that the intruder didn't swear at Darley. Quote, I have never worked an offense where somebody was fighting with a live victim, especially a man against a woman, to where vulgarity was not used, as well as a lot of threats that was not there. Okay, maybe. If Darley had been drugged, though, she may not remember, or the perp could have been trying to be quiet. Darren was upstairs, remember? Next, Cron says, As you exit the family room, there was the glass on the floor, the vacuum cleaner, and the bare footprints. There was no footprints other than the bare footprints. There were no shoe or boot prints present. Some of the glass was on top of the bare footprints, which would indicate the glass was placed there on top of the bloody footprints. There should have cuts and scratches on their feet after stepping on sharp glass from the wine glass, broken glass, and that was not there. There should have been bloody footprints. I mean, there weren't exactly a ton of footprints left by the first responders, or Darren, either. Okay, just a little more of his testimony left. Quote, The lack, or the fact that the gate was so difficult to open and shut, is inconsistent that somebody would have committed a crime like this and gone to the great care of shutting the gate behind them and latching it. Okay, he has a point. However, there is a reason why witness testimony is unreliable. Armed brains miss things and then like to fill in the gaps in our memories. Even without the possible introduction of drugs into the mix, Darley, believe it or not, could have been lucid dreaming or just plain mistaken which way he went. And the last little bit of Gron's quote, 
It is just inconsistent with somebody fleeing a murder with a living witness that is armed. The intruder is supposed to have dropped the knife in the utility room floor. I have never known someone to arm their victim, which is what this would have been equivalent to. I'm honestly not sure I agree. The knife block was right there on the counter, at counter height. If she had wanted to grab a weapon, this seems like a more convenient place to do it from. Plus, she's in her own home, that she knows well. It's not that like there aren't other objects she could use. Like if he doesn't drop the knife, she'd have no option to defend herself. They're not in a field of corn. Back to Kron again. And all of these put together, in my opinion, no intruder committed these offenses. End quote. Given all of his points together, though, I can see why the investigators were suspicious. The problem I have with Kron's assessment is that his determination is still based mostly on his preliminary walkthrough and was never adjusted as the evidence was processed. We have gone through what was supposed to be the hard evidence. Very little of it is actually hard evidence. Certainly not enough to suggest, beyond a reasonable doubt, that Darley is the one who did the stabbing. We have essentially come to the end of the evidence, that hard evidence, in this case. So I'm going to leave you with it all for today. Next time, we will begin looking at the more qualitative evidence, which worked against Darley and her claims of innocence. If you like the show, check us out on Patreon or just like, rate, and or review with whatever service you use. Links are in the show notes. I'm sure I'll hear from someone who wants to debate me on my facts. The killers will see you out, and I will talk at you next time on It's All Relative.